Welcome to the only show dedicated to a new way of delivering healthcare. This new model has no name, but let's go ahead and call it direct contracting or digital first care. The new way centers on opting out of the games bigs play with their rigged dice, their crooked game board, and their purchased referees. And if you're looking for a future where everyone wins, that's the doc, the consumer, the employer, and with assured amazing outcomes and measurably lower costs that are ranging up to 60%, you're in the right place. I'm Ron Barshop, your host. I'm glad you're here. Welcome to the new healthcare economy. Right. There is no dynamite more effective than a fix from the edges. Federal Express, charter schools like Kip Academy, the largest in the country, have completely upended and unnerved bloated bureaucracies that seemed unassailable. We will never fix healthcare, but we're rebuilding a new model from the ground up. And it starts by rejecting the bloat, the dumb rules that were designed by bureaucrats, the volume-centric game board of codes designed for bigs, not us. In fact, if EHR were designed for us, we would have solved what works for the pandemic too sweet. No mucking around. We know what therapies break through for autoimmune disease and cancer. We don't because the game is rigged for bigs, not for us. We don't even own our own data, nor does our doc, which is insane. Direct contracts are skipping bloated middles like FedEx did, like KIPP Academy has in the charter schools and accomplishes the same. The Bucas and the Bigs cannot compete in the long run with this model. Amazon has a real chance because of several unique advantages. The new retail primary care, though, are doubling down on the Bigs, ICD-10 and CPT Bibles, albeit with value-based ACOs, but they're just doubling down on a broken house. So why would anybody code indirect contracting? Because it's a cash pay. So now it's back to charting care plans and patient-centric focus, not bigs payment models direct contracts allow all of us to be winners there are 30 million consumers who are using it and that's strictly based on the people who have showed up on my show via self-funded employers who are financing this new model this new movement that's just to count as i said from the ceos and chief medical officers we have booked on 150 episodes there has to be more than 30 million there are 60 transparent and bundled price surgery centers that are emulating the original one, Surgery Center of Oklahoma, which was created in 1993. They have never since 1993 raised their prices in hundreds of different surgeries. And in, so in 30 years, they've in fact lowered many of their prices in 30 years. Find that in healthcare. Again, it's designed for self-insured because the surgeons there make two to four times they will at a cash pay center than they would at a traditional traditional legacy center. And the patient has no surprises, no facility fees, few complications with the most experienced narrow niched specialists on the planet. Employers are basically capping their surgery risk with cash pay excellence. In fact, every specialist, not just surgeons, offer discounts for cash. They win with no billing, no coding, no chargebacks, no denials as do the independent imaging. We have green imaging. They have 1,400 locations that are 20 to 60% off the system-owned centers. 
So place of service matters, independent versus system owned. Most of them are system owned. Labs, they all discount for cash. You can get all your labs for cash. And pharmacy is literally a race to the bottom. We had Scripto as a guest, Zach Zeller, and they offer one to three cents per pill on 85% of all generics for $140 your membership fee. So that's 90 cents to $2.70 for a 90 day fill. Do you even need a pharmacy benefit manager at $3 every 90 days for your medications? And remember, generics are 90% of all the drugs that are sold. Almost 90% of all scripts are generic. So the other 10% are branded, that stuff you see on TV ads, those advertisements cost money, and specialty drugs like chemo drugs. And even though they're these specialty and branded drugs are only 10% of sales, they represent 75% of the overall drug spend in America. Does that make sense? So that's why generics are 90% of the medication sales out there because they're ridiculously cheap. And if you can get it at the cheapest wholesale source, who needs a PBM? So direct primary care is a subset of direct contracting the mothership. And it will continue to see market share continue to shift away from the legacy model thanks to eliminating friction of money, friction of time, friction of all the navigation aggravation is another way to say it, not only for the docs and consumers, but for the employers too. And the tyranny of unaffordability. We've talked endlessly about the underinsured and the functionally uninsured on this show, which is probably about half of Americans that simply can't afford their medications or their care. So also costs drop 20 to 60%. Never hopefully get tired of hearing that one. And the outcomes improve measurably with a trusted primary care physician in your pocket, in your digital first pocket, if you will, and measurably with shorter stays, fewer visits, and this expensive treacherous downstream rapids we call sick care today. It's a future where everyone wins. I am thrilled to introduce back a guest who made so much sense, you can't just listen to him once. John Canyon is a nurse practitioner who speaks the truth. I've had, um, I'm not going to say countless, I've had several guests on the show that I could not publish the show because they spoke privately the truth to power. And then when it came to turn the mic on, they couldn't tell the truth. John Canyon is a truth teller. He is a former teacher at a couple of excellent nursing practitioner schools. And so he knows what's going well and what's not going well in nursing. And this isn't a tell-all, this is a fix-all uh, prescription. John, welcome back to the show. I have a I have a realistic view of life, right? Yeah. So I try and break stuff down from a, a non-emotional standpoint and look at pieces from an objective an objective standpoint. And when, I, for instance, if I hire somebody, my interview process is brutal. I'll bet you have them uh, chart a patient. I'll bet you have them file a claim. I'll bet you do it all. We well, they have to know how to. They have to know how to how to uh, document. They have to know how to. Uh, uh, approach a patient. I make them do an assessment. I go over clinical scenarios with them to test their knowledge, mm -hmm. because this is something that you, in, in my mind, you have to do right now, or it's somebody I know and have already trained. Okay. Yeah. You don't want to work alongside somebody who is going to mess up a, all the hard work you've done with great, right. you know, with a patient. So in this is, this is one example I give for that. When I, when I, uh, one of the last emergency departments I went and worked in, I, I walked in the first day and the doctor says, I can't believe we hired a nurse practitioner. Y'all suck. I'm going to have to go see every patient you see. Y'all are the worst. I can't, 
I don't, I just can't, they should have hired a PA. And my response to that is, well, I don't know who you've been working with, but it wasn't me. A month later, that doc's one of my best friends and he wants to work every shift with me, right? So it's a significant difference in how you approach things too. So I don't know. Are, is there someday, and i getting back to questions and I'm supposed to be signing off here, but <laughs> is there going to be someday when we're going to see like GI nurse, GI specialists that are nurses or brain surgeons that are nurses or neurosurgeons? There was actually a nurse practitioner who started doing uh, uncomplicated surgery cases in, in Britain. Um, I, 15 years ago, nurse practitioners were doing EGDs and colonoscopies um, without intervention. So they were doing screening EGDs, colonoscopies. They were doing... Uh, uh, heart catheterizations. Okay. I don't think that that's outside the realm of possibility. I think that probably what's going to happen at some point is you're going to get nurse practitioners who are GI specialists going to be doing screening colonoscopies. And, uh, because there's just everybody who's 50 needs a screening colonoscopy for colon cancer. And there's just not enough gastroenterologists to do it. So what you may see in the future, if people are a little more aggressive in their thought process is have a a board certified gastroenterologist sitting in a GI suite, having four NPs doing screening colonoscopies. And if one of them has a problem, they, they have the doc come in and snip the polyps or uh, clip the bleeder or do whatever intervention needs to be done. Okay, that may be a future that we're, we see rather soon. And it just all depends on reimbursement. That's the problem. The problem is, again, scope of practice. The reason that they're not doing that now is 10 years ago, insurance companies couldn't figure out how to, how to pay them, how to reimburse for it. Like, we don't know what to do because you, FNP, have been trained to do this. John, FNP, has not been trained to do this. How do I know who can do this and who can't? And there wasn't really a good definition of that at the time, which is why my thought process of doing the specialization. I got to brag about my son. He's a gastro and um, he's going to be working with a really prestigious group that uh, does a lot of work with the Yale medical students um, when he gets out of his fellowship very shortly. And he's, he's at one of the Harvard hospitals now, but I gave him a business model. I thought could make him a lot of money without having to use nurses or anything. I said, if you just work on little people all day long, you can see twice as many people because the <laughs> GI tract is half as big and you could, you know, set up your practice as a specialty. And then we start, he said, well, I, dad, I did the math and there's not enough of them where I live to make it work, but it's a great idea otherwise. So uh, I said, well, then just help short people. I mean, don't, you know, nobody over five foot, you know, <laughs> Yeah, that works until you're on call, right? Yeah, exactly. When you got to take ER call, and then you then you get whatever whatever walks in the door, and yeah. you've got a mess of 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 patients to take care of. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, we don't have any scopes long enough for you tall guys. We can't help you. We'll send you <laughs> next door. He didn't like my idea. All right. Well, that's what dads are forced to be the difficult. Um, all right. So, um, if you could fly a banner over America with one message to this subject, what would that message be? Uh, we need to we need to revamp the entire NP education system. Period. Yeah. Period. It needs to be revamped, and it needs to be the education. The clinical hours need to be increased. And you know, 15 years ago, we didn't know as much about medicine as we do now. We're significantly more progressed. We're going to keep progressing. We need more hours to keep up. Hmm. I mean, we really do. And my my thought on it is that I want the people who are trained behind me to be a thousand times better than I was when I graduated. Shoulders of giants. 
John, thank you for your candor. I think if I would have talked to some guy from, you know, name brand school, I would get the defensiveness you talked about because, you know, there is a lot of that. When I start talking about these subjects online, on LinkedIn, people get very upset. And yeah. we're not saying nurse, nurses, bad doctors, good. We're saying um, light training, bad, heavy training, good. Well, but the question is, and this is, this is something that the, that the docs are even uh, talking about is, is how much training is necessary, right? You know, if, if we can do it with 8,000 hours, why are we doing 30? Yeah. You know, I mean, if we can do it with 10,000 hours, why are we doing 45? You know, at what, and that's the real question, right? Is at what point do we say we've had enough training, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's something I think that, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I think it might be state by state. I think let's say Indiana might be a lot more kind than Idaho next door or practically next door. And well, I mean, I'm talking about the base training for like residency or, or, uh, when you're in medical school, how many hours do you really need? Um, how many hours of residency do you really need? Do you really need a three-year program or is two year good enough? Right. Right. Or should it be two and a half or should it be one and a half? Well, we know, yeah, we know you don't have to memorize all those anatomy terms because you've got this thing called Google. It's really incredible. That's right. <laughs> and, and do we really need to know the Krebs cycle and all the intermediate molecules? I mean, right. And, and while, while you're looking at that, at what point, um, while it's, it's great foundational education, at what point do you need to be more specific to your role? Right. Right. Would it be, would it be better to reduce the number of hours of training? If you know what role you want to go into from the beginning, mm -hmm. like if I, if I come out of school and know I want to be a dermatologist, I accepted into dermatology section. Do I really need to go through four years of medical school? Mm -hmm. Could I do it in two and a half and get what I need to be foundationally an expert in dermatology and focus on dermatology just from the beginning. I mean, get my base, of course, base education, and then a uh, year and a half focused into dermatology and then spend two years as a dermatology resident. Would that be enough? I don't know. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's, those are definitely conversations worth having. I mean, I don't know that we need to, as nurse practitioners, go up to 40,000 hours of training, but I, I also don't suspect that 500 is a minimum is enough. Yes. I mean, it, it's, it's obviously not enough. We need more. We need, I need to know that when you walk in to see me, you need to be confident enough that I'm going to treat you as well as the physician does. Would you advise your children to get into nursing? Uh, one of them. Yeah. One of them. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't advise anybody to become a nurse practitioner right now. I wouldn't advise anybody to do that. I'll tell you something interesting. One of my dear friends, uh, his daughter won a national award. I'm not going to say, cause it'll identify her, but she won a national nursing award and she cannot advance in her hospital. And it's a good one, uh, because she'll step over people with more seniority, but less quality than she has. I mean, she's, I can't even, I'm afraid to talk about it, but she will literally have to leave a good hospital because she is ready for management and they're not going to give it to her because it'll upset the uh, people that have been there longer. Here's, here's the thing. Um, and I, I've got a real, this is, this is a value, right? You have to value people in as an individual, any corporation that pays people based on a scale and that's all they pay you on is making a massive error. Mm -hmm. For instance, the way that I do is I, I like progressive scales. So you have a base rate and then you're able to make more money based off of RVU production, right? Mm -hmm. So in an urgent care, the most I've ever made on an RVU base is 166 an hour. Mm -hmm. Okay. Whereas the average NP makes 55 to 65 in an urgent care. Right. Wow. So, and the reason that we did that is because I can produce and I know how to generate money for your business. 
So if you want me to come on and work for you, I work for you, but you have to reimburse me at a rate that's commensurate with your skill set. Exactly. And yeah. there's some people who are on the lower end of the skill set. And this mm -hmm. goes for, for uh, uh, administrators as well. If you have an administrator in your hospital who is rating people just based on how long they've been there, you know, that's not a good way to evaluate people. I mean, how long somebody's been there, you know, I mean, I can sweep a floor in, in a room, let's say a bedroom takes me four hours. Well, the next guy takes him 10 minutes and you're going to pay me more just because I've been there longer. Doesn't make any sense at all. This has nothing to do with what I've heard you talk about before, but it seems to me that we're, we are in this pandemic because we haven't even used that word yet. The P word in this pandemic, we're running a lot of good people out that are nurses that have proven they're beyond a shadow of a doubt, excellent at their job because they have natural immunity and they don't do well with jabs. Um, or, you know, there's a hundred reasons they might have be immunosuppressed, but there's a, a bunch of reasons why some people are not getting a vaccine. And I'm not trying to get, you know, you know, red or blue here, but I'm just saying, it seems like the, a lot of nurses are not going to get their, um, if they don't meet certain deadlines, they're not going to get uh, that job at that hospital any further. Are you seeing that in San Angelo? It's the most ignorant thing I've ever heard. We're not dealing with that here. Yeah. Um, and here's the why. The literature shows, and you have to be objective when you look at this. This is not a plus, minus, whatever. Okay. Yeah. Literature shows that the um, natural immunity is as good as or better than the, the immunization. The Israel study said 27 times better with 700,000 patients. It's 27 times better, not a little better. Now, well, you know, there's some, there's some other literature that is wishy-washy, but I mean, the quality of that literature may or may not be. Yeah. And I'm not going to get into that. I'm yeah. not getting into specific studies because that will we'll be here all day, but there's literature that shows that natural immunity is fine. So why are you trying to, I mean, it makes any sense. If I've, uh, you have to have a hepatitis vaccine to work in, in, in medicine, or you have to prove that you have a hep titer. Why not let these people prove they have a titer? Mm -hmm. If they have a titer, then they're fine, right? The, it, it doesn't make any sense from an objective standpoint to try to enforce that, right? I would, if it was me and I'm, I'm the king for a day, it would be immunization or titer. Mm -hmm. You can choose, but you have to show that you have immunity, right? Yeah. And again, there's literature coming out from the, from the pharma, pharmacy companies saying that you may need a, an updated injection because it's not providing long-term benefit. Whereas the literature showing that the natural immunity is providing longer-term benefit. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I would treat it just like we do anything else. Mm -hmm. If you can prove immunity, then you're fine. If you can prove you have titers, that's fine. If I go into work at a different hospital tomorrow and they say, we need your hep titer. Well, I haven't had a hep shot in, I don't know, 15 years. Well, then we need a titer to make sure that you your hep, hep is up. Okay. I'm going to imagine in San Angelo, Texas, you're not going to have the same kind of pressures you'll have in the big city where they think they can replace those. Um, nurses are not easy to replace, especially with five years experience, but I guess it's not going to happen in smaller towns in Texas, like your town, because they literally, I mean, it can make a huge difference in the revenues if they lose one ER slot to of a nurse, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. We, we, I mean, you, you, when you, even when you look around the country right now, there's I mean, they talk about hospitals being full when in fact it's bed capacity, not nursing staff. So they have bed capacity availability, but they don't have the staff to take care of them, mm -hmm. right? 
And there's a lot of things for that. I mean, you know, I know 25 nurses who went and did the uh, COVID staffing, right? The emergency COVID staffing where they paid a lot of money to these nurses to do COVID staffing, right? 23 of them retired. 23 out of 25 retired Wow! because they were second income earners. They were all female. And that's not just, just the statistics. 23 that retired were female. The two that didn't were male. The 23 that retired were all second income earners. And once they paid off their debt, they didn't need their income anymore. So they said, I'm not working anymore. Yeah. And the two that, that I know that, that are male, one of them has already gone back to work. And he's just working as a, a traveling nurse. And the other one hasn't gone back to work yet because he's made enough money that he's just taken off for six months. Mm -hmm. I don't have to work. I'm not going to. The hazard pay paid for it. Why do we have half of all nurses, and I'm talking about the whole alphabet soup now, drop out after five years? What is going on there? Are, are you talking about drop out of the profession? Out of the profession. Out of the profession? They step into something else. You know, that's there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, income. First one, a lot of people aren't making very good money doing this. They thought they would make more. They're not making good money and the stress and they have unsafe staffing ratios. You know, you put people in positions where they uh, are going to make mistakes. And the literature is pretty clear on that, too, on staffing ratios. But uh, uh, there's not very many states that have adopted safe staffing ratios because it costs more money and you don't have. I mean, nursing is going to be the biggest cost in any hospital system from a, a, a cost standpoint, because it's the largest portion of your workforce, right? Mm -hmm. So you want to keep that cost to a minimum as an administrator in order to increase your revenue. But the flip side is if you, if you go with safe, safe staffing ratios, you reduce your malpractice risk. Right. Mm -hmm. And it reduces what we talked about at the beginning, all those medication errors, all the medical errors that happen. Hmm. A lot of that can be attributed to unsafe staffing ratios, which isn't, I mean, that's all, we're getting a whole lot of different topics here. Well, that's okay. This is our second uh, visit with you. You came on the show earlier in the year, and now you're back for a second interview. This is John Canyon, an NP who speaks the truth to the truth of what is going on well and not with nursing. Um, John, you need to write a book. I mean, it doesn't have to be a thick book. It could be 12 pages, but you really do need to get your ideas out there, I believe. <laughs> I've got that on the list of things to do. I've got a, I've actually got a format I'm working on, but I, it's, it's, it's uh, like, for instance, like we, we talked about trying to get this set up. I've got 24 shifts I'm working this month trying to cover for COVID and all that. So, you know, it's, I'm working 24 days out of the month. And those days that I was off, reason we couldn't do it earlier is because I was on vacation. You know, it's the only time I could take vacation. Yeah. I, I, do you um, see the burnout in their faces at the end of the day when they are uh, just completely gone? They're not there anymore? Oh, absolutely. And they're overworked, underpaid. I mean, you, you look at a model where you have somebody who is supposed to care all day about every patient. And it's, it's difficult when you, when you deal with difficult patients and you're in, put in difficult circumstances, for instance, the we're running a 21 bed ER and we're holding 22 admissions because we don't have enough nurses upstairs to move the admissions up. Right. So they've got whole units closed because they're not hiring people mm -hmm. and they're not hiring people because the people, the nurses have done COVID staffing and realize they can get paid more money. So they don't want to come unless they're going to get paid. And, you know, the hospital's not willing to pay them. So they're not willing to bring them on 
to help out the staff that's just getting absolutely brutalized. And you get, uh, I mean, and I talk from an ER perspective because that's my home. Um, you get a nurse who normally takes care of four, uh, five patients in a shift when the, the safe standards are four in an ER. And then you add on top of those four patients, now you have four or five additional hallway patients who are stuck in a hallway bed that you have to take care of as well. You, know, you get to where you're staffing at critical patients at a level that they should not be staffed at. Mm-hmm. You Do you feel differently? So, so one of the reasons the, burn, the burnout factor of half the nurses going out of the profession is it's emotionally draws too much out of them to care about every patient every day, every minute. And the second reason is I've told it's such physical work that they, you guys sometimes feel like glorified janitors. Well, there's, there is, well, actually they are janitors sometimes depending upon where you work. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, nurses are one of the, one of the top professions for back injuries. And I can't remember probably 10 or 15 years ago, they were the number one profession, but I don't know if that's still the case. I haven't looked at that literature in a long time, but they get back injuries all the time from heavy lifting. I mean, we as a country are not getting skinnier. Yes. Do you have a, um, a sadness about the families can no longer join their COVID patient uh, uh, family members? In other words, it must have been a little bit of joy to see mom and the kids or grandma and the, you know, the grandpa sitting down with the families and they're all glad to see you and you're walking in and you're like, you know. I think that's absolutely the worst thing we ever did. Yeah. I'm by far and away. I mean, it's not even close. Okay. That is the absolutely the worst thing as a profession we ever did. And I don't know that, uh, I don't know that the literature supports what we did Yeah. at this point. Let's just add a giant dose of loneliness to their misery. It's just, yeah. Horrible. And you're killing the family too, because the family can't be there. Right. You know? I mean, you want to be there when your loved one is, is hurting and sick and doesn't feel good. Yeah. Their stress is already high enough. Yeah. It's horrible. And then you got to look through a window at somebody. Come on, man. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I just, I, I, I think that as a profession and as a country, we handled that exceptionally poorly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I get at the beginning when we didn't know anything, right? We didn't know anything about this at all, but I mean, I, if it's me and I was king of the world, you know, at that time, we don't know we, here's what's going to happen. If you want to see your loved one, you're going to get in a hundred percent suit and we're going to put you in a viral suit and we'll let you go in the room. Um, do you have any theories on why nations like Taiwan, Japan, South Korea, Australia, let's take Australia out. Let's just say those three nations, their death rate per 100,000 is one-tenth to one-twentieth of that of America, UK, Canada. Obesity. So it's obesity. So they're eating better? Yeah, they're not, they're not as fat as we are, man. Okay. We're one of the fattest countries in the world. All the hypertension and, okay, all the sure. comorbidities. The, the biggest comorbidity for death with COVID is obesity. Yeah. Nobody's talking about it, but that's it. If you're, if you're morbidly obese, you got a, uh, what is it? 75% higher risk of, of mortality. I don't think it's that, that may not be right. Well, but it's high. It's dramatic. It's high. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you, if you're obese, you got a significantly higher risk, especially if you're under 60, the, the over 60, we get that. This is like yep. the pandemic of 1919. That was 20 to 40 year olds. This one's 60 plus year olds. Yep. But except it dips down to, you know, parent, parental age, mom and dads when they're not well. Yeah. Comorbidities and obesity are the big ones. Right. And the, the one good thing about this, I mean, it's hard to say there's a good thing. Right. But the one good thing about this is it's not killing kids in yeah. any significant number. 
right? Yeah. Kids are not, not getting a, and when kids get sick with this, they don't die from it unless they have significant comorbidities for the most part. That's what I thought. Yeah. I just saw the math on that. The, the odds of losing your child to COVID are the same as getting struck by lightning or getting kicked in the face by a horse or a cow. Yep. Uh, you're right up there with, it's just so unlikely that it's not going to, you can't expect it to happen. And by the way, natural immunity is in that same ballpark. It's under one per 100,000 that are dying from these, uh, uh, like car accidents are 30 times more likely than uh, a child dying from COVID. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. It's very, very interesting. So the question there, the question there is why, why are kids wearing masks? I don't understand it. It doesn't make any sense. Why, why are we, why are we encouraging children to wear masks when one, they're not going to die from it Two, if they get exposed to it, they're going to get natural immunity from it. Right. Mm -hmm. So I don't understand the, the, I mean, the literature doesn't support this at all, what we're doing. It just doesn't objectively. We can't, I can't find a reason for us to have any children masked. Right. So we know that, that, uh, kids are not vectors, right? They don't transmit this very well. Do you, do you feel the same about the vaccine for children? Should we dare talk about that subject? Well, I mean, from an objective standpoint, I don't think the literature supports it. Yeah. Why am I giving a vaccine to a child for a disease that is not going to affect said child in, in, a, in a significant fashion? Yeah. Do you vaccinate your kids against flu every year? No. Well, my kids are adults now, but I didn't when they were kids. No. Why not? Because they got the important vaccines when they needed them. Yeah, and the flu is unlikely to unlikely to cause lifelong debilitation, right. and it's also unlikely to cause death. And this kills kids at a less at a lower rate than flu does. So, you know, to me, it makes zero sense unless somebody is high risk. It it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, I mean, I, the the way I summarized it is. Don't go playing lightning storms when it's thundering outside and don't, <laughs> if your kid has to work on a farm, you know, just stay away from the trampling stuff because that's where you're <laughs> going to get hurt by a cow or a horse. And by the way, if you're going to, you know, be a kid with COVID, you're in that same category. It's like, I can't think of anybody I know that's been struck by lightning. I don't know of anybody that's been killed by a horse or a cat. Well, maybe I've secondhand, but well, I'm, I'm in Texas. We, I, I know a few people that have had cow and horse injuries. Yeah. I'm in San Antonio. I'm in your sister oh, city okay. because well. we're spelled on a lot of people confuse our cities together alphabetically. Yep. Yep. Well, what a pleasure talking to you. Last time we were on the show, I asked you, and I'm going to tell you how you answered the question. If we could fly a banner overhead, you said nurses need more education in light of today's topic. What would be your banner overhead for America to see if you were uh, able to do that? Oh, for, uh, vaccinations. Um, high risk need them. There's no, there's no doubt. The, the bottom line for COVID, which nobody wants to talk about, everybody's going to get this. Mm -hmm. I think everybody's going to get this. It's a date with destiny. If you want to reduce your mortality, okay, and you are over 18, getting the vaccine is a good idea. Mm -hmm. If you want to reduce more, your mortality and you're under 18, not really much you're going to be able to do. Well, I have a good strategy that worked for, I don't know if it's worked for me because I may have had it not known it. I may have been anti-symptomatic, <laughs> but I lost 40 pounds. That's definitely a good thing. I mean, obesity is huge, massive. We need to, we need to become a thinner nation. Intermittent fasting folks, eat six hour windows. It's magic. You watch two pounds a week, or at least me. Um, well, that's, this has been a great uh, second talk. I'm glad we got you back on the show again, uh, John Canyon. Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. One, 
go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.